So as we jump into talking today, <clears throat> again, these, these three weeks, I really want to um, kind of master being able to encourage and challenge um, and even bring about a certain amount of, of conviction in our hearts about our responsibility and role as ministers. Um, I don't want to do it in a way that is ever adversarial. I don't, I don't believe in doing that. I don't think a pastor or a preacher should ever be adversarial with um, his own congregation. I know there are pastors who do that, but it just seems dumb to me and foolish. And so um, I, I don't ever want to fall into that trap. At the same time, I feel like it is time for us to be um, encouraged and challenged a little bit. My heart and mindset uh, today is, is really that. Um, so one, to, first to let you know, today is uh, in the church calendar is the Sunday called Epiphany. Um, Epiphany is another word for made manifest. Um, It's the idea that we've just spent a number of weeks, four weeks or more, celebrating the coming, the advent, the fact that Jesus was coming as a baby and that he came as a baby. And then this Sunday is, of course, the natural reminder, but that's not the end of the story, that's the beginning of the story, and that he has been made manifest in us that our lives, his life, became that not just of a baby, but of Lord, Master, Savior, King. And our lives should therefore be somehow transformed by the fact that we have this Lord, this Master, this King, who came as a baby, circumcised on the eighth day, and then celebrated through the miracles that He performed, and eventually to the point of death, and not just any death, but death on a cross. That His ministry was made manifest beyond merely being born and coming Emmanuel, but living as a man and experiencing death as a human in our place. And so that's part of the great reminder and part of the great additional value. Was just, I was so, um, so pleased and excited during the first service. Um, at one point, while Keith was talking to the first service, he couldn't see it. But John, John Redford, who knows what the sermon is going to be, um, was standing behind him going like, yeah, that's exactly what, that's exactly the message that we want to have be encouraged with is there's a ministry to be done and there's a price to be paid in that. It's not cheap or, or it's, it's, it's expensive for us to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. And we honestly so often pay such a small percentage of our opulence to serve and to minister and so it's always great to be challenged. It, I said in the first service, it always challenges me extra knowing that there is someone who is in the mission field in some other part of the world um, in the room while I'm trying to preach to us. And, and it just it feels almost a little wimpy. I don't know about you, but it's like we're struggling. I mean, we don't have 40 people in our home, but we're struggling. Um, what was this you said about the masks in the Philippines? Yeah, so they had a shoot on site rule for people not wearing masks. Yeah, yeah, we're all, yeah, everybody's, everybody's more than willing to wear a mask there. And so, again, as we talk about the things that we call hardships here, sometimes when put in perspective as to what people, the price people are paying, all of a sudden doesn't feel like, gosh, the, the, the things that we allow to be the barriers to keep us from ministering suddenly don't seem like very thick barriers anymore. So I, that's part of the challenge for us, and I believe is appropriate, is that that does fan into flame 
um, the work of the Holy Spirit in each of us to recognize, okay, okay, what, what have I accepted as an excuse and how quickly that is torn apart like tissue when compared to the power of the gospel around the world. My heart and my mindset is similar to that of Paul's in 1 Corinthians 14, which he says this, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You you guys are my beloved. I do want to challenge all of us as a church, those who are present, those who are at home, those who are watching this over the next few weeks, those who are part of South Spring, the church, the, the capital C church, of course, in particular, this church, small C church that we are here um, we, you are my beloved, and, and I'm so proud of you guys, um, and it's so hard to talk about and teach through. I talked about how my, the pastor, when I grew up, um, one of the most impactful pastors of my life, a guy named Kent Pate, would regularly, almost every Sunday, and there's a few of you who are part of his church who are here, but almost every Sunday reference the phrase, we, we don't have the luxury of sitting around in our blessed assurance uh, anymore. Um, we, we have that, but we do not rest in it, as in we do not we don't sit in it. We, we act and we live in that. Um, this is such an awesome church, and I'm so proud of this body of believers. I didn't know until the first service that we increased our giving to Agape, and, and we did with many other ministries as well, and that's because of the generosity of the people who are present. Um, I, I boasted, to use the Apostle Paul's word last week on that, and we'll do so again today. Um, I'm so proud of those body believers. I hear time after time of the testimonies of your shepherd's hearts, of your leadership in the community, of your care for one another, of, of the way that you do these things. And, and I'm not one of those pastors. I don't get afraid. I regularly will have someone stop me or, or I'm having lunch or, or, or breakfast or somebody with someone in the community and they will say like, hey, f- before we talk, I need to tell you something about somebody in your church. And I know a lot of pastors, probably that terrifies them, that, that introduction would terrify them. Not me. I know I'm about to hear about testimony of how someone has served or given or taken care of people in some magnificent way, and, and that's what happens time after time. It is, I, it, that is more joyful to me than I can possibly verbalize. It's the reminder that being a pastor doesn't, is not running in vain or laboring in vain. Um, I'd love to show this community off, and, and maybe that is pride. Uh, maybe it is. I hope not. It, it feels humbling, not prideful. It, it feels like kind of this glowing version of, of a humbling thing. Um, I want to make sure that we're ready to show one another off in the coming year. I want to make sure that we're prepared for that because I think the opportunity is coming. I think the opportunity is going to be here. I think when we stop blocking off every other row and when we stop having to do these limitations, and Lord willing, that day will come sometime this year, that will happen. And when we're ready to do that, when it comes time to do that, will we as a body of believers be prepared to serve? Or will we still be resting in the bad habits maybe that we formed? In the same way that we formed bad habits about the way we eat during the pandemic, we've, some of us have formed bad habits in the way that we worship or the way that we live out our lives and certainly in the way that we serve, which is not the case and we have plenty of opportunities, in some ways maybe more opportunities than ever before. And I believe that the need is here and the potential is growing and that the opportunity is imminent. So we need to be rebuilding toward. Maybe not everyone is ready to serve now, but we need to know that you're ready to serve. We need to know who's willing to be on the front lines. If not now, when? And you can go ahead and commit now. This is when I'll be ready. This is when I'm prepared to serve. I'm ready to step in. One of our sayings around here, one of our mottos is that every member is a minister. 
<clears throat> when people ask what that means to me, I, I, I talk about our mindset of ministry from the beginning. Um, this, is, this is not a babysitter's club. We don't do that with our kids. Every once in a while, someone um, talking to our staff, maybe, maybe somebody from the outside or something like that, will use the phrase. They'll say like, so what, what do y'all do for childcare at your church? And if, there, if there's someone from the outside, you know, we all just kind of mutter under our breath. We don't correct them in the moment. If it's a member of the church, they're corrected immediately. But uh, otherwise, to go like, we don't, we don't do child care here. We do, we do children's ministry. It's not the same thing. We don't, we don't ever do just child care. We don't, when, when I asked Paul a decade ago to come and lead the student ministry at the time, um, which, of course, John Sturrock has taken over the last few years and has continued to grow, and it's become, it continues to be such a powerful ministry of our church and in the kingdom, what I, what I said was our mindset of student ministry is this. Student ministry isn't ministry done to students. Student ministry is ministry done by students or that is equipping them to minister. We don't, we're not, it's not just a matter of, hey, we're going we're gonna to have your kids for an hour, so let's just babysit them. No, no. It's about equipping them to be ministers. The assumption is they're going to face pressures we've never faced as a nation before. They're already facing them. The pressure to conform and to fold and to throw out God's Word as not authoritative is higher than maybe anything most of us as adults have ever faced, the pressure that they're facing. So we must be equipping them, not just entertaining them. That's our mindset. That wasn't as powerful 10 years ago, but we knew it was coming, and it's only going to get more. So how do we do it? Well, we do the same thing with our children. The same thing with our children that we go, well, what, let us, let's just hire a bunch of people to take care of our children for us, to do daycare with our children on Sunday mornings. First of all, that's easier said than done. But second, that would not fulfill the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church isn't to take care of the children while the adults grow. No, it's to equip all of us for the ministry of the gospel, including the little kids. They need to be equipped because they're going to face pressures and things that we've never maybe faced. And so for us to say, how do we pour into them? Well, it takes all of us to do that. That's who we are. Every member is a minister, meaning we're prepared to step in and equip one another's families, to equip and train one another in all these different ways that's called for. <clears throat> Ephesians 4 which is the, what I would say, it's our key passage for ministry. What I mean is, by our, I mean the church for 2,000 years. It has always been the main passage. Some of the main passages when it comes to ministry is Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 begins this way, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge. I was impressed and surprised to find out that the word urge here is the word where we get the word, that's the word that's kind of like paraclete, meaning the comforter, the encourager, the counselor the encourager, but also the exhorter, the challenger. So when we say like someone who comes alongside us and walks down a path with us, that's the paraclete, someone who walks with us. But of course, as we know, sometimes when people walk with us, they have to drag us a little bit. Sometimes they even have to give us a little kick in the pants. That's what this is being talked about. I urge you, listen to me. This is important. You've got to do this. Let me encourage you to do this. You've got to keep going. You've got to push. Some of you are, are trainers. Um, uh, Bobby's Struce back there. Just like, this is, the, minute, this is the, the business that he runs is with training athletes and such. Encouraging them isn't always just patting them on the head. If, if you hire a trainer and all they do is go, good work, you're nailing it, then you're, not, you're paying for nothing, right? You need someone who's going like, nope, do another one. Nope, do another one. Nope, do another We need that. And that's what's going on here is this this picture is that we, the paraclete, someone who comes alongside and walks, parapateo is the next word, walks with us more than just walk. This word parapateo means more than just take steps. It means to live this out, to walk the walk. 
So this is the Apostle Paul from prison. By the way, that's, it's always funny to me. I think we think, oh, what a, what, he, metaphorically, he's a prisoner for the Lord. No, he's in chains because he's a Christian. He's literally a prisoner of the Lord. He's writing this letter from prison to say, I urge you, challenge you, exhort you to walk, live a different kind of life. What kind? A manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Not lacking a calling. You have a calling. One, you have, if you're a non-believer or even as a believer, we've got the general calling to all people. It is Jesus saying this, follow me. That is the calling for all human beings. If you're walking in opposition to him, repent, turn the other way, and follow him. And when we in our own lives as Christians, when we notice something in our lives that doesn't match with his walk, with his peripateo, change and follow him. Do it his way, not our way, his way. How? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus Christ is a solution to our problems. When we say, uh, when we have that midlife crisis, and if you've heard me say many times, the problem with midlife crises is we wait until midlife to have them. We need to have midlife crises on a regular basis, early, often. Start having them as children. That's my recommendation. Start asking yourself, is this it? Is this it? This is my whole life? This is it? This is what my life's going to be? If you're, if you're midlife and before you ask that question, you've waited way, way, way too long. You'll be asking that question early on. And the answer to that question is Christ. If I, if I die today, will I look at my, at my life looking back and go like, wow, that was a wasted life? Well, that was a wasted year. I invested in things that weren't eternal. Well, then now's the time to have a midlife crisis and change that, to turn that around. He is our solution. This is wild to me. I heard someone preaching this week referencing the idea that, that sometimes as Christians, especially in the West right now, we've gotten into this habit. We forgot that we have the cure for cancer. And I don't, I don't mean literally, I'm not a health and wealth type teacher. I mean, we have the cure for death. We know the cure for death, but we're not telling anybody. Can you imagine how we would engage with somebody who knew the cure for cancer and didn't tell? And so when we look into our lives going, how am I going to do this? You go, I, don't, I, can't, I mean, I can't imagine me being one of those people who stands on a street corner with a sign. Okay, well, if God doesn't call you to do that, fine. That's fine. It may not be very effective anyway. I'll tell you what it is. Sitting with a bunch of second graders and third graders and telling them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching that to them week after week after week. And helping them to see, oh, he has the cure for death, and you need it. The church is God's plan A. We're his ambassadors. We speak for the cure. We tell people. We let them know. And sometimes, so I want to make sure you hear as as I'm saying these things, this isn't a lack of understanding. It's not that I don't know that you're tired. That we're tired, and that sometimes when we're tired, we're carrying a heavy load. And sometimes when we're tired and carrying a heavy load, we still have a long way to walk. And that is totally true. Many of us have faced death and illness and job loss and, and true, honest-to-goodness challenges that we face. These aren't, these aren't minimized by the fact that people around the world are facing the same challenges and sometimes greater challenges. It doesn't make it less real, but it puts in perspective the fact that it's the same God encircling all of that. And that, that, that same God is the cure for all of these different things. Part of why I'm a Christian as a psychologist is the recognition of suffering. Our temptation to look at our own suffering and to think that it's, it is just Im, impassable, un, unmanageable, something that could never be climbed over. 
And, that's, and the world, all the different world religions offer different cures for this. There's no cure on, in, in the world for suffering according to the Scripture. There's no like, oh, here's what you do so that you don't suffer. Jesus says, no, no, you will suffer. There's bound to be struggle. This is the deal. He's honest about it. In fact, here's what he says. In, Mark, I mean, in Matthew 11, in verse 28, this is one of my favorite passages about this because it's so counterintuitive. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As I understand it in the Greek, and I'm no Greek scholar, the word rest here is the action. He is saying, I will rest you. Come to me and I will rest you. But when you look at verse 29, this is one of the strangest passages ever in all of writing, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice what Jesus has for those of us who are weary and heavy laden, who are carrying a heavy load and have a lot of work to do. What does he have for us? A yoke. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Hey, come to me when you're really exhausted and worn out and you just can't carry one thing more because I've got something more for you to carry. So the only way this makes sense is either it means it's referencing the fact that he carries the load with us, which I think is, is very plausible and a great application and certainly is true. I think, though, probably the correct interpretation more likely is that what he's saying is, let me take all those other burdens and yokes that you're carrying and let's dump them off in exchange for mine. Because I know what you need to carry. I know what's worth you carrying. I know what's worth, what burdens are worth you having. I know the ones that have an investment in eternity that fit you well. Some people think the correct word here for easy would actually be fits well. That my burden fits for you. So instead, the, the burdens that we're carrying now, mom's burdens that she placed on you, dad's burdens that he placed on you, the family burdens, the community burdens, the political burdens, the, 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 you pick it, the church burdens that aren't Christ's burdens need to come off and instead to say, okay, what do you have for me to carry? But notice, not carrying a burden isn't the option. Going like, well, I just won't carry one at all. See, God's going to, I don't need a yoke. I don't need a burden. Wrong. He has a yoke for you and it's loaded down and it's going to be more than you can possibly carry but it's the right one for you, and he provides not only the power of his spirit, his own identity with us, but one another. As in Galatians 6, it talks about how we need to each carry our own soldier's pack, our own responsibilities, and be willing and eager to help one another carry burdens that are too big. And if you're carrying a burden that's too big, you reach out and you get help. And that's what a big part of what this church does so well. It's, it's humorous to me um, when, when someone faces a challenge of something in their life, and so sometimes I'll hear about it, and sometimes I'm the last to hear about it, which, by the way, is completely appropriate biblically, is that I might be the last sometimes to hear about it. But I hear about it like, oh, let's, let's get online and let's sign up for a meal for this person. So we get online, and it, it's like six months before there's an open meal because everyone in the church has already signed up. I mean, you guys must be constantly buying meals for each other. It's just crazy to me that you're, when someone's struggling, that, some, that, that, that I'm like, well... I mean, everybody's got this covered. It's amazing. So if, you didn't, if that didn't happen for you, it means we apparently didn't know about it. So let me know. I, we just, when, when I was sick, we almost had to buy another freezer. It's like I have to buy a, an outdoor freezer or something because anyway, it's a good problem to have. <clears throat> this, is a, this is his burdens for us. No one's teaching this differently in the Bible. This is what Jesus says about this. We rest, but then we work. 
Six days, that command's a two-part command. Six days you work and one day you rest. It's not a one-part command. It's two-part. Six days you work, one day you rest. We, we have a job to do. We have God-given work to do. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says about the work of the ministry, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, you may have misused this passage. You may have talked about one of your character flaws as your cross to bear. Anybody ever run into that? Hey, listen, I'm just an angry guy. It's my cross to bear. Like, no, no, that's everybody else's cross to bear. That's not, that's not yours. That, for you, that's called a character flaw. You need to grow up. <clears throat> this, this idea of going, this is, no, I have a cross to bear. This is talking about the ministry that God has called us to that's going to cost us, by the way, our lives. That's what it means when you're carrying a cross. Years ago, I heard a preacher say, you're supposed to take up a cross. Where did you think you were going? A picnic? If you're carrying a cross, it means you're going to a crucifixion. Yours. That's what this means. We take up the cross he's given us to the point of death. Um, you talked about Mueller and so many of those others who the, the, the inspiring ministers of the past and, and of the present who do this. I remember reading that missionaries used to pack their gear in caskets. Well, you talk about signing the bottom line, the blank check. I'm packing my gear to go overseas and I'm packing my gear in a casket because that's how I'm coming home. That's, that's a beautiful picture of what the Christian life is supposed to be. You take up your cross and follow me. Because I'm car- Jesus saying, because I carried a cross, and if you're going to follow me, you've got to do the same. How much excuse does it take for us to not serve? Oh, well. Luke 9, 61 to 62. This is even worse. This is the toughest teaching, I think, maybe one of the toughest two teachings of Jesus in the entire Bible. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Dang. You don't understand. If you, if, you think, if you think it's appropriate to go check in, then you don't get this. You're not getting it. The idea here that Jesus is saying is you put your hand to the plow. When you start looking backwards, you start making circles. It doesn't make any sense. You've got to focus your eye on one thing when you're plowing. and You focus your eye on that to plow the straight line. And Jesus is saying, I'm the thing you're focusing on. Now, here's the cool thing is, Jesus may send you home to say goodbye to your family, but you don't get to choose that. He decides that. He's the one who decides. No, no, I'm the Lord and the Savior and the Master. We've, this concept of fealty, this idea of, of, of swearing fealty, of being a servant or a slave or a bondservant to a master is so hard for us. It's especially hard for us as Baptists and Southern Baptists in particular because we're break-offs, much less Texans, Right? Because we don't, we don't, we listen, we don't listen to anybody but us, really. I mean, they can say what they want to in Washington, and as long as we're okay with it, okay, fine, guys. But listen, the minute you, we're out of here, right? This, that threat always hangs for Texans. We're Americans. We did the same thing as a whole nation at one point. No, 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 no. See, we're on our own now. This is our natural tendency. We don't do this swear fealty thing well. We don't realize our founders, one of their mottos during the, the war for independence was no king but Jesus. It's not that they didn't think there was a king. It's that they didn't think it was George. They thought it was Jesus. And that's the idea. We still, we live in a monarchy as Christians. We swear fealty. It's why when you swear fealty, you bow your neck to a person armed with a sword. You're telling them, listen, if you want to take me now, it's your life, not mine. And when we accepted Jesus as our Father and friend and Lord and Savior, what we did was say, it's your life now, not mine. My preferences are now subordinated to yours. 
my desires and what makes me feel good is now put under you. You choose. Anybody uncomfortable with any of the teachings of Jesus? That's my problem. I have to deal with my discomfort. I've sworn fealty. This is, this is something that's just part of what it means to be a part of his church, to come to him and carry his yoke. The Apostle Paul was just as rough with this, Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, listen, so listen. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. This was actually the verse that made me decide to teach this, this concept over these three weeks. This idea. When we look around to those who are in the household of faith. By the way, this may include your husband and your wife. This may include your children. That we don't grow weary, your parents. We don't grow weary of doing good. That as when the opportunity is there, we do good, especially those who are in the household of faith. This may include your ex. This may include your adult family. This, this includes your neighbors. It certainly includes your church. That we don't grow weary. Isn't it easy to grow weary? Oh my gosh. I've got to get up and serve again. That sounds hard. Uh-huh. It is. 2 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul does it again, almost the exact same phrase, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. This is the ongoing. This is who we are. Remember, we have a calling. This is our identity. It's who we are. It's what we are. We're his ambassadors. We're his ministers. We're living out the life that he's called us to, this life that he's given us. We don't grow weary in it. And by the way, when you do grow weary... You go to him because apparently if you've grown weary, you may be carrying the wrong burden or the wrong load or you have the wrong messages connected to it or something. You need to return to Jesus and let him give you the right load and the right burdens, whatever those are. I don't know. I have some suspicions if you're part of South Spring, what some of them are. Ephesians 4, wait a second. One more, 2 Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are, not, that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. These eternal opportunities to minister, to invest in the lives of of human beings through God's Word, two things that last forever, humans and His Word. And when we get to bring those things together, that's a powerful opportunity that we can't ignore. What burden do we bear in place of His burdens? Which burdens do we need to confess and repent of? This is the constant human conversation. If you don't know Jesus and you've not followed, you've not heard His call to follow you, or you hear it today and you've got your own life, you need to repent and turn around and follow Him. That's called a conversion. If you're a believer and you need to realign yourself because you realize some part of your life isn't following him, we realign, we confess, we repent, and we realign ourselves to follow his way. Which yokes are we carrying that are ours? Which burdens are we carrying that are ours, not his? We have a room full every Sunday. We have a role full of teachers, leaders, givers, workers, servants in this church. And some of you are being called to other places. Some of you need to leave for the right reasons. 
God may call you to go to the Philippines and work with Keith. You need to go. God may call you to send people to go do things like that. You need to send. This is this again back to what a generous church this is. I know this is a room full of teachers because there's a line of people. I feel this pressure every year to tick off like I, I tick off of a not in an angry. I mean like off a checklist to check off. Let's use that word to check off. Um, the list of people who need to spend some time in our pulpit every year. And there's more. I, I also, I, one of my fears is I get to heaven and God says, listen, the ten best preachers in Tyler, Texas were in your audience every Sunday. You should have been kicking them out and getting them to find a place to go and do that in new ways. And, and if listen, I'll take Sunday mornings most of the time, except for when the other times when other people do it, which is actually quite a bit for our church. It's really kind of cool that our leadership board uh, encourages that. But beyond that, to go, there's plenty of other opportunities here and, out and around to teach, to lead, to even preach. We need to take those opportunities. <clears throat> I also know the leaders in the community. And it turned out, by the way, we don't have the final number, at least I don't have the final number. Uh, but as of the 27th, we were sitting on a $300,000 surplus as a church. So in a year, again, when ministries were struggling, we were able to increase giving and we will continue to do so because of your generosity through what God has given you that you're giving to the church and to other ministries that we can spread that out. As I said last week, we've always done 10% as part of our identity as a church. Starting this year, it's 12%. And we're working towards 20%. That everything given out of every $10, $2 would go out. Right now, right now it's $1.20 that goes out starting this year because of the generosity of the people that God has called here. So if, if, it, if you're called to say it's time to serve in new ways, or in old ways again, and you say, but I, I don't want to have to do the little extra to protect and provide safety, or at least provide security for other people. Well, honestly, that's not that big a burden to carry. Having to, having to do that isn't that big a cross to bear. When we hear about ministries overseas, another one that I want to share with you guys from Eleazar and Jacqueline Perucci, um, uh, they are part of Crossover Global and I want, to, I want to develop the habit of sharing this. We, normal, during a normal year, we do once a month, we share about a ministry that we're connected to, and this year made that difficult. But Crossover Global is a church planning organization. Um, they typically, they work most intensely in India and Nepal and the Middle East and North Africa, places where the gospel is exploding. They're not post-church, post-Christian cultures like ours. The ministries are exploding in those places. This year, during COVID, and many of these places are shut down as well, this year, Crossover Global Ministries has planted 295 churches, a ministry that, that we're partnering with and support as well. Every single one of these examples of these numbers, which numbers aren't impressive to God, as we know from the, the, the woman who only gives two small pennies. Monies aren't what's, I mean, numbers aren't what's impressive to him. The faithfulness of people to serve is what's impressive to him. Their prayer, um, LEAs are part of a DOXA team, which means a crossover biblical, that's their biblical training institute, and they train ministers in local areas to then plant churches themselves. Jacqueline's a part of the member care team um, and gets to engage with people who are there to comfort them because like us, they're facing death in their families and, and difficulties and challenges as well. <clears throat> and here's, it always strikes me when people say, please pray for things like this. Pray for our teammates who face death and persecution. 
We, even with all the challenges we face, and certainly death is part of it here in America too, we're not yet at a place where we're praying every week for our ministers, the persecution they experience. But around the globe, that is exactly the kind of thing is happening. I've been, I've been uh, reading, uh, uh, John Keeling and I were talking, and I've been reading some of the church fathers recently and listening to them, and one of them is called the, the Didache, which is um, a, a kind of a compilation of the, the, it seems to be, we don't know for sure, but the apostles, the early apostles and the early church fathers in the first century, so within just a few years of Christ, kind of put together this packet. It's almost like a pamphlet for if you're a Gentile, but you're trying to follow Jesus and you don't understand Judaism, here's some ways to do that. And in one of the lines in it, it says this, I love this phrase, let your alms, your alms meaning the things you're going to give away, let your alms grow damp with sweat in your hand until you know who it is you're giving them to. What a great line that you go, I know we're giving this away. And as I said last week, you know, Bobby Hicks, one of the elders in our church going, I, we, listen, we don't want to get caught with this money, right? Get, get rid of it, get it, give it away. The same thing is true of our service. Are we generous and easy with the way that we serve here and one another? If not, God has called you. I believe, this is my opinion, I believe you need a compelling reason to not minister in your local church. You would need a compelling reason. You would need to be prepared to sit down before God and explain why you didn't serve in your local church. And it would need to be compelling. I think, I think probably the, the, one, the main one that strikes me is that you're in a season of rest in your life, that you just cannot. You are so broken that it's a time for you to rest and you can't serve. Beyond that, <clears throat> I don't really know what it would be. You certainly have to have a compelling reason not to work in the kingdom. And by that one, I certainly can't think of an example other than it's a season of rest. God calls us to be the ministers and the ambassadors in his kingdom and in his local church. You may not get to choose, we may not get to choose where or how we serve. That's, there may be one reason or another why we're not, it's not appropriate for us to serve. I may want to sing, but if I can't sing, I shouldn't. Right? That, that's, an, that's the kind of thing that you go, listen, that, I'm not going to serve there. That, but that beyond that, there may be reasons why you can't serve in a certain way or you don't serve in a certain way and all that's fine. But, but beyond that, there is a place to serve and ways to serve. And I want to really encourage and challenge us with that. To go back over some of these numbers, the harvest is plentiful. That's going to be my, one of my main passages next week is where Jesus talks about that. God has provided many, many workers, you and me. But the passage shows us that there is, we still need more. Listen to this, we have 900, we talked about this last week, and I'll mention these each week, 981 or more unique registrations to come to Sunday church since October. There's a lot of people who want to be in church. That represents 325 households. In the year, <clears throat> year 2020, we had 75, actually 77 new members. We've been averaging about 100 students on Wednesday nights and 70 on Sunday nights. With greatly limited availability, we still have had 50 to 100 children present on Sundays and another 30 on Sunday nights and another 100 on Wednesday nights. There's a lot of kids who need to be discipled. We don't get to decide whether to disciple or not. This isn't one of the things that you go, well, some people's ministry is to disciple and to be discipled. Others not. Sorry, that's not how the Christian faith works. If you say, I don't need to be discipled, what you're saying is God has nothing to teach me through any other believers. And that would be a false witness. God does, and we need to be being discipled. 
If you're not discipling other people, then what you're claiming is, I'm so young and new in my faith, I'm such a baby believer that I have absolutely nothing to teach another believer. And unless you are that level baby believer, that's not true. You say, well, I can't, maybe I can't take on uh, discipling a, a group of adults. I'm not ready to do that. Okay, that's fine. But there's probably a group of, of six-year-olds who you have something to teach about the gospel. And they need that. I put on Facebook, um, tell stories about when you were a child and the children's ministers and servants and leaders and teachers who changed your life. And you can go to my Facebook page. There's already tons of them. I'll probably share some next week. I'll share mine next week. This is something we greatly need. We have lots of kids who need to be invested in here. That was perfect timing, by the way. Thank you. <clears throat> so let me, let me wrap up with this. Are we ready? When we have 720 children on our rolls, the question is, are we ready to invest? Maybe, maybe it's not time for you right now, but you're, but you're saying, you know what? I want to be part of the 150 people that are dedicated to saying, when, we're, when it's time, I'm ready. Maybe you want to be part of the 300 people that it will take, plus all the other ministry opportunities that you would say, I can't do it then, but I will do it when we open all the way back up. You need to let somebody know that because we need to know who's ready to step into the gap and who's ready to serve, who's ready to be trained because there may be some more there that you need. No, no. Listen to this. Here's what slows us down. Much less innovation, launching new ministry opportunities. This would be a great year for that. There's not a great opportunity for ministry, in my opinion, to singles in South Tyler. But we need to do that. And our church would be a perfect place, a perfect opportunity to do that. How about with college students? For years, I used the excuse, oh, we're too far from the colleges. <clears throat> and most of y'all let me get away with that excuse until sitting on my porch, John Sturrock was like, yes, it's not true. We're not too far from the colleges. College students drive past our church every day to go to TJC and UT Tyler, all the time. Maybe the majority do. And, and, and regardless, my college students and my family, they drive from my house by Lake Palestine all the way downtown to go to a coffee shop. It's like a 30-minute drive to go to a coffee shop. Apparently, college students don't mind driving in order to go where they want to go, where it's going to be, where they're going to be encouraged. So this is something that as a church, this would be a great year for that. We need people to fill in the gaps of the ministries already that we have available, and then we need people to step into some of these innovative things. Again, you may not get to choose, but we, we need to come alongside one another. Let me wrap up with this. I've gone a little long. Have we, have we gotten into the bad habits? Ephesians 4 says this, I say and testify to the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Okay, maybe we don't fall into all of that, but when you think about serving, do any of those thoughts come to mind? Is there a hardening? Is there an edginess? You feel calloused? Are you more focused on the sensuality, on what feels good to you rather than what it's going to cost? Are you going back to the old self? Have you felt the tug instead? So this verse, these verses here, I'm going to close with these. The next part of the passage, Ephesians 4, 20 and 24, but that's not the way you learned Christ. <clears throat> Assuming you've heard about him and were taught through him as is the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness 
and holiness. I don't pretend to know what that is. I know where the service opportunities are in this local church. And I know where people need to step in. It's between you and the Holy Spirit whether that's you, but I know there is a calling God has placed upon you to serve and to lead in your homes and in your communities and in your church. If you're a member here, you've signed on to be a minister. So I want to pray, and I want us to, as we stand, go ahead and stand with me. When we pray, I'm going to ask that you don't just let me pray and don't just let us sing, but that you pray and you're praying for one another. Next week, I'm going to focus on the idea that the harvest is huge. And we need to pray that God will send the harvesters.